How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovas, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. Olivia Fuchs and I spoke appropriately on Earth Day, towards the end of April. I met Olivia through iOpera, a UK-based initiative that started during the corona pandemic as a kind of think tank for opera professionals who would like to make the opera industry a better place. Though much of Olivia's career involved opera directing, she actually started out first as an actor and then an indie theater director. Her story involves founding her own experimental theater company in London, a burned-down performance space, and the very UK tradition of performing above pubs. Recently, Olivia has been working on environmental activism, which she hopes to incorporate into her work in theater. We spoke about techniques of approaching theater directing, how almost any story can be feminist, the advantages of growing up bicultural, Margaret Thatcher's unexpected help in founding a small theater company, and of course, finding ways to make ecologically conscious, sustainable theater. My father was an archeologist and we moved around a lot. And I guess art was in my life always. Old art, you know, ancient art and also more modern art. The first opera I saw was actually on a film. It was um, Ingmar Bergman's The Magic Flute. And that was rather charming and beautiful. And then as a teenager, there was a scheme in my town in Germany, because I grew up in Germany mainly, where you could go to the, you know, you could buy a sort of abonnement and you could go to the theatre. And that's when I fell in love with it. Also, then I started doing things at um, school and also being an extra in the theatre and also opera and operetta and musicals at my local theatre in Germany, in Münster. So that was sort of age 13, 14, 15. And so when I was 15, it really took off. And actually, it was sort of against my nature in some ways, you know, because I was quite a serious child. And then it was just my release and my rebellion and um, it was wonderful, yeah, it just unleashed the whole sort of creative process. I did a bit of directing at university, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it was partly because all the models that I had of directors, they were all male in Germany at that time. Everybody was a man. And also most of them were very autocratic and quite tyrannical. And they used to scream and shout and behave really badly. And so there was nothing in me that even considered wanting to do that, just didn't appeal at all. So when I started directing a little bit at university, I understood the differentiation of it. It was really only when I set up my own theatre company that I started to direct again. So you were mostly an actress then for, for a yeah. long time. You were on that side of things. 
Exactly. So I worked as an actor for a few years and then got fed up with that and set up my own theatre company with a, with a colleague. So tell me about what that process of setting up this indie theatre was like. It was wonderful. And I mean, I must confess at the time, it was under Margaret Thatcher's regime. And I do not have much positive to say about her. But what she did do, which helped us and some other theatre companies, is she had a scheme. It was really a scheme to get people off the dole, you know, off the unemployment benefit. The scheme was a, it was called Enterprise Allowance Scheme. And it meant that if you you got a tiny bit of training of how to run a company, literally sort of just the technicalities, and then you could set something up if you could raise a thousand pounds. So we raised a thousand pounds basically through crowdfunding and putting any money, any savings into it. How did you do that back then without the internet? Well, my, my <laughs> granny was amazing, actually, I must confess. So she, she really contributed a huge amount. So we just asked a few f- friends and people. I mean, it was mainly my cont- contribution as well. So we started off and we, had, we got basically an income, which was £40 in those days. And it was £5 more than being unemployed. And so through that, we, we started to set it up. And our main aim at the time was to tell stories, really, to tell stories of unknown European classics and contemporary plays. And a lot of them I translated as well. And to tell them in physical theatre ways and also using live music. So that's where also the love of music came in. You know, I was always, I always loved music and I, I, I used to play the flute when I was younger. So I could read music. But I suppose what I was really interested in was improvising. I was very inspired by Peter Brook and his approach to theatre, by Krotowski, very physical theatre. So a lot of it was, was exploring and devising work together with a collab- very collaborative way with, with actors, performers. The first few shows that we did were, were all profit share. Well, they were all profit share. So it basically meant whatever profit we made, we would share it out, which was very little. So it was really quite experimental for me. I mean, I wouldn't say it was groundbreaking because I know other people were doing it as well. But I, I was having to explore myself and, and learn from, we were all learning from each other, really. And from the culture that was going on around us, because there was quite a culture of alternative theatre, you know, what we used to call fringe theatre in London. And we were very lucky because after our first production, which was Wojtzeck, the play, our first reviews had just come out and they were they were good, you know, in the alternative magazines like Time Out and City Limits at the time. And the next day, the whole theatre burnt down, including our set and everything. So it was a complete disaster. At the time, it was a shared space and it was in a theatre cafe. It was called the Canal Theatre Cafe. And it basically had a tiny little stage and lots of tables and chairs. And we did it as an immersive piece. And yes, uh, there was a bank holiday in between and um, somebody just put up theatre lights and they caught some gauzes caught fire. And it wasn't our fault. But anyway, the whole thing was gutted and burnt down. So we couldn't perform anymore after a week. So that was sort of like the crunch point that was our our moment of transformation, because my colleague said, well, that's that, you know, we've tried our best, what can we do? And I just thought, no, we've got to try better. And we talked to the actors, and they were very happy to find a way of carrying on. And I I ended up ringing up every single theatre in London through, you know, there was this directory. It was very scary, because some of them were quite big, some of them were small, tiny, got to D, and this very unknown theatre called the Duke of Cambridge Theatre, which was a pub theatre, which again is quite a culture in, in London to have theatres above pubs. So it's basically just the big room with a little bit of infrastructure. And anyway, this Duke of Cambridge pub theatre happened to be finishing a show and they said, come along and have a look because it's unusual for theatres in London not to be booked up in advance. We went, we saw it, it was a completely different space. We had to redirect everything. 
reconceive it all. But the rest is history. We were then asked to take over the theatre, which was an amazing um, thing. So that's how we managed to carry on, because it meant that we could then rent out the theatre to other French companies, make a little bit of money and plough that into our own productions. And so keep going on a very sort of, it was very much on a shoestring, everything. Our first set was worth £50. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure that was a that was a huge learning experience of how to work with the means that you have, right? With minimal means. Absolutely, it was brilliant. I yeah. mean, I it was brilliant in lots of ways. One is that I just under I had to do everything. You know, we had to be front of house managers, stage managers, company managers, making sure the toilets were clean. You know, marketing we had to do some lighting. Sometimes we had to. You know, I was on the lighting board doing the lighting. Literally everything. I just feel I know the structure inside out, and I know what everybody's roles are so that was brilliant and then it was just gave us um, the possibility to to explore and to do so many things we then uh, became a little bit more ambitious after a while so that um, one of the next shows I did was a new piece which I translated so that was a premiere and that went really well it was called wash day and then after that we decided we were going to do a small scale tour so we did that as well we we hired a van and we broke down loads of times and we got to places and different places. Had to always set up our set, which was, again, very minimal. That was also an amazing experience, just touring around with a lot of people and all the things that go into that as well. What were the audiences like? What were the audience reactions like? Yeah, I think people, I mean, that we had quite a lovely, loyal audience mm-hmm. a lot of the time in um, our theatre because it was a local pub. And so we had some local audiences and then we started to make a name for ourselves. And so people used to come from further afield as well. And I think just it's a it's a lovely culture. You know, you can buy your drink and take it upstairs and watch oh, yeah. the theatre. And so it's very immersive. You know, it's a very small space. There were only about 70 seats. You're very close to the performers. You're very much in it. It stops that divide between performers and audience. You know, it's like we're all in it together, working as one. So it's interesting that you would go into opera after that. There's this orchestra literally just between the performers and the audience. Okay, so how it happened is I slipped into it. I um, This production I was just telling you about, Wash Day, I invited a few directors who I really loved, um, you know, whose work I loved, to see it. And I was very lucky. Out of six people I think I invited, I think three came. And one of them was called David Freeman, and he basically after a few conversations, asked me to work with him on a theatre production first. But the theatre production also, we were working with a, a wonderful composer called Nigel Osborne. And it was a huge production. It was um, in six parts over two evenings or one whole day. And it was in partly in a theatre and partly in a church. And it was the Mort Dartha story and everybody, the audience had to go on its own quest. So it was very big. And in the church, we often had um, simultaneous action. So it was almost a bit like an opera, but it was, it was more difficult because it became quite a cacophony at times. But anyway, because of that, I ended up having quite an involvement. And he then asked me whether I would like to assist him on an opera um, for his company in Switzerland, Opera Factory in Zurich, and then to direct the following one. And it, actually, the following one was a, mainly a musical. It was a a court vile opera. So I said, yes, I don't know anything much about opera apart from I read music. And he said, oh, well, there's no difference between opera and theatre. And actually the way he worked, there wasn't very much because mm. he would work with an ensemble like you do with actors. So he did a lot of improvisation, 
um, a lot of physical theatre, pushing the performers, you know, to their mm. limits or kind of working with them. So it was a really great way in because it took away the fear. And the shock only came when I started to work in bigger theatres and with choruses, which again was a big challenge at the beginning because that's quite different when you're coming from theatre and used to working in a very much more immersive way. Would you say that your kind of mixed cultural background that that would influence your creativity or the way that you approach texts and that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm sure it does. I mean, all our backgrounds always influence us, don't they? When I was young, it was quite unusual to be bilingual. So it was quite a, a stigma as well, in a way. It was even for me. Was it for you as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I was at the very end of the time where it was no longer, it's no longer as much of a stigma. Yeah. Yeah, now you have to be bilingual, otherwise what yeah. are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that it was a bit of a stigma and it also meant that I never felt I belonged. I don't know if you had that mm. experience yes, as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So I was never fully German, I was never fully English. Mm. And I think that sense of not belonging is quite a useful um, intersection for creativity because I think we all creativity comes from a sort of from paradoxical and um, contrasting feelings and thoughts, you know, and being pulled in different directions. And it's been very helpful for opera because, of course, in opera, we, we work in lots of different languages. I work often with lots of people from different cultures. The operas are sung in different languages. And I think the other thing it's helped me is when I was very little, I used to always move after two, three months, sometimes six months. Mm. So to make solid friendships was very hard, mm. but it was very easy to adapt, fit mm. in and and be quite cohesive with a group of people and to learn what the what the sort of culture was of that place. So that's what I was trained to do. You know, I had to always adapt, find my way, fit in find the language that everybody spoke and fit in. And then I think be also make quite intense uh, connections often. And I feel that's what happens in opera. You know, we, we all work together intensely for, you know, six weeks, two months, whatever. And then we disappear again. But then we might see each other again a few years mm. later or decades later. And still that same intensity exists mm. because we've all been through a common experience and been vulnerable together and really worked together deeply. So how did the fact that you started as an actor affect your directing and how did your directing theatre affect your directing opera? Lovely question. Thank you. So I think uh, I'm really happy that I worked as an actor and I trained mm -hmm. as an actor because it means that I understand the process that performers go through. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that it's a process. You know, you mm -hmm. can't expect people to have everything ready and, you know, just do a full performance on the first mm -hmm. day of rehearsal. And I've seen a lot of directors in action who do have that, you know, they have mm. that expectation. Mm. So I think that's been a huge contribution. And I think because of that, I really, really trust performers. I see them as, as collaborators, as contributors to the whole overall production that we're working on. And then I think that all the work that I've done in theatre and also with Opera Factory, which was very much taking away that sort of fear that opera singers can't do what actors do. They might have a different process to actors, mm -hmm. but often they are more willing, you know, some of them are more willing and more able to do all sorts of different things. And then I suppose the theatre that I was interested in was very much um, physical theatre, also expressionistic theatre, non-naturalistic theatre and ways of telling stories which weren't necessarily naturalistic. Yeah, can you explain those terms? So yes, of course. So naturalism is very much what you usually would get on film. So it's it's really trying to be like real life. 
realism is like a an extended version of that i would say that it's still very much about uh realistic parameters but often it can be very heightened and obviously it's quite selective in in what you're showing on stage and then expressionistic it's more there was a whole theater movement of expressionism which is really about expressing things which weren't necessarily not naturalistic. So it was more about using metaphors and inner states and finding different ways of telling a story which might not have an absolute narrative of beginning, middle and end. And out of those kind of different movements, different ways of telling stories and making theatre evolved. Well, it kind of sounds like opera is naturally expressionistic in some way. Yeah, I think so. But again, I think often there's a dimension to opera which is very much about what are the metaphors? What's the expression? What are, what's the intention underneath? And that's what I love unearthing. Maybe that's where I go back to my father's archaeology. You know, that I always feel there's, there's, we can always dig deeper. You know, there's always more to, to um, find out. It's not just the story on the surface, which we can tell. But what I'm really interested in is what's really happening underneath and what is universal. You know, what can we all understand and connect with, whichever century we live in. our time, wouldn't you say that uh, Regie Tat or Regie Oppe has been a way for us to kind of interact with these older texts, which we do not agree with necessarily morally? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, we yeah. reinterpret, I have to, I'm a woman, mm-hmm. you know, living mm-hmm. in the 21st century. I have to reinterpret all those pieces mm-hmm. to some extent and all bring out diff- certain aspects of them, you know, that I feel are relevant mm-hmm. at this moment. So yes, I think it is a way of doing that. I mean, certainly in opera, we all have to constantly be thinking, in what way is this relevant for today, for us now? Mm-hmm. And what new aspect can we bring to it? You can tell mm-hmm. most stories from a feminist point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, most of Verdi's heroines, for instance, you know, can have a, a feminist po- point mm-hmm. of view. Uh, Janacek as well, of course, fantastic. I mean, he, in a way, yeah. he was a great feminist, even if he didn't always behave like one. He really was, <laughs> yeah. I but, don't know um, about not always behaving like one, but it's it's actually quite amazing. If you, I mean, you, you aren't you directing the Vixen right now? I'm going to, yeah. That's my the cunning next little Vixen. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's kind of a, a joke, but you know, the the fox tells the Vixen when she says, "No, I live alone. I'm totally independent." He said, "You're the ideal modern woman." You know, <laughs> I love um, it. Yeah. And I think because she's an animal, in a way that that kind of made it possible for Janáček to tell this story, in which she she pees mm-hmm. on someone to get him out of his house so she can steal his house, and says, "Here's something feminine for you." <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just flying in the face. It's true that the 20s, I guess, were a little bit, there was this kind of opening up, but still, it's the 20s for crying out loud, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It really is great. And a lot of Czech sopranos so want to, to play the vixen because uh, it, it's just so freeing, you know, because it's really you. <laughs> it's really what most yeah. of us are, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> and also it's the wildness of it too, isn't it? It's like... Mm-hmm. You know, and the and the immorality as well, which I love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, can you reveal what your plans are for this <laughs> this production, and where you're doing it? Well, it was, yeah, we're we're doing it at Longborough Opera Festival, mm-hmm. and we were supposed to do it last year um, in their theatre, but because of COVID, obviously, it had to be postponed. So, it's a wonderful opportunity to do it this year. But we are now doing it in in a big top tent, so it's going to be quite minimal in the sense of, you know, setting. What I, I mean, I love the cyclical aspect of it as well. So we want to also use anything um, 
sustainable and natural and reusable because it is so such a nature piece. So it seems yeah, completely it mad not to. In fact, we aren't using much set. So we've got a tree um, mm-hmm. which can move around. We've got a few elements, you know, t- tables and chairs. It's going to be very much an ensemble piece, really looking at, like you say, you know, the feminist aspect of it, the connected to nature aspect of it. So for instance, at the beginning, the little the little children, rather than just becoming coming on as sort of insects, you know, they'll come on as, as children to... Um, to look at the insects under their microscopes and in their jam jars. And then through that, you know, it's again what we usually do with nature, isn't it? Let's find a bug and put it in a piece of, you know, in a glass jam jar. And then let's put it under a microscope or kill it or whatever. Um, so so really looking at our ways of dealing with nature and how, how we are in nature, um, because that seems to be part of the story to me very much, that... Um, the forester and um, you know all the humans are all very pretty unhappy, and they're trying to control nature, aren't they? And they're con- trying to control their environments. And it's only really at the end when the forester's gun slips from his hands, you know, that it's almost like he goes, "Okay, I'm letting go of this now." And I feel for for today, that's a very important lesson for us, you know. What do you hope to to see change after this era of COVID um, is mostly over? Uh, what is what is the change that you hope to see um, in the world and in the world of, of opera and opera directing? Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. So in the world, it's huge. I mean, I really want a green recovery yeah. and for us to to really face the climate crisis and deal with it. This is actually a big part of your work. It, right? it has become, I'd put it that yeah. way. You know, so the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of mm-hmm. work on that. I mean, slightly separate mm-hmm. from opera, um, but mm-hmm. quite a lot of... Um, advocacy and and networking work so yes so that's an important thing for me and in terms of opera and theater and the arts I think to make it more certainly to make it more inclusive I'm really hoping there's going to be a mushrooming and a flowering of new work evolving Mm -hmm. and new different sorts of work and smaller scale work and because I think we've been far too long sort of walking in the in the in the footsteps of other people and of course, we always build on other what's gone before us. But I think now is also the time to really reconsider the structures and systems that we are living in on every level and the structures and systems of the opera and theatre world, not to just throw everything out with the bathwater, you know, the baby with the bathwater, but just to really reassess it and to listen to new voices, you know, to listen to the younger generation. It's lovely when everybody can put their heads and their hearts together in order to try and um, create a better world and a more diverse and inclusive world. Because I think diversity is the other real importance, because we know that in ecology. You know, the more diverse an ecology, the more resilient it is, the more beautiful it is, the more complex it is. And it's the same in human endeavours. You know, the more diverse and complex our opera ecology is, the more beautiful, resonant and resilient it is. Are there any ways that you can actually learn from your work in ecology and apply it to how you create art or how you, um, you know, fund art or how you bring art directly to the audience or something like that? Have you ever, ever thought of that? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think that's I probably need to give it some more thought. The obvious way is to reduce, you know, all our carbon footprint and the and the excess that operas often become connected with. And to really just go back to um, Peter Brook wrote this wonderful book, uh, The Conference of the Birds. I don't know if you know it, but it's about his experience of traveling around Africa. And they just literally had a a big cloth that they would put out and then they would perform, you know, 
anywhere they went, they would perform in a village and they'd have an exchange of performance as well. And so obviously there's 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 that, you know, we can literally just move around and do things on a small scale and within a natural environment and surroundings. That's one way to go. And then I think we could just look at all the different um, ways that we light a theatre, that we make a set, how we can, you know, all the sustainability of those things, we can look at the carbon footprint of that. And that, that has already been happening. You know, I know there's been quite a bit of work on on lighting so that we don't use so much electricity because it's crazy what we do, um, particularly in a big theatre with hundreds of lights. Um, it's a huge carbon footprint. But also to find the joy and the creativity in all of that rather than feel that we have to have an austerity of, of doing less or or not so exciting. And to really reconnect that it's about human beings, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe also animals, who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, theatre can be about lots of different things, can't they? And um, yeah, people will find new, more new creative ways of exploring those those areas. Well, I think that your background in these this small experimental upstart theatre can really help you with that, don't you think? Because you had to learn how to work with minimal means. Yeah, and I've done quite yeah. a few um, projects which are in unusual environments and... Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean all those things? So I'm very happy always to work on all scales. You know, I can do a big main house production, but I'm very happy to do something odd and strange. In fact, that's often more exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever done anything outside, outside opera or outside? Um, I did work with air? an opera company where they performed outside, mm-hmm. but in the in the UK, that's always a bit of a challenge because sometimes it just rains, ah, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can never be sure with the weather. So yes, I have done that. And I have done pieces where elements have been outside. Yeah, quite a bit. And then I've done lots of sort of semi-outside work where yeah. there's been a tented structure just to, to cover the musicians at least, because that's mm. always the main problem, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you can't get yeah. them wet. This might be kind of surface level, but I actually think that doing theatre outside is is an incredible way to get people more connected to the to the elements also, you know, because... Uh, yeah. That's also part of nature that we don't we don't control it. We don't control the thermostat. We don't control the the humidity level. And I think that's something, uh, you know, kind of to roll with the punches. I think that's actually really educational, even for an audience. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I completely agree. And a lot of audiences love that, you know, because we have also mm-hmm. the Globe Theatre in London, where mm-hmm. again, you, it's basically. Yeah. I mean, some of it's a bit covered, but you have mm-hmm. the groundlings who are open to all the elements. No, I agree with you. I think I think there's a whole new area of mm-hmm. opera and theatre to be evolved there. I mean, I think there are lots of theatre pieces that are semi that are outside. Oh yeah, but less opera. Just I think mainly because of the musicians. Yeah. Yes, because of the acoustics and everything, which is understandable. But you could also power things with um, solar panels or bicycles. I mean, I've seen that where you know you get a band playing and everybody's powering it through, you know cycles or whatever and it, that's that's a great way of doing it if it you mean the you mean the performers or the band is actually on cycles making no, the energy just yeah oh. in the audience so anybody who wants to so I, i've oh, been part of that to. you know okay so i i was cycling in order to create <laughs> nice. the energy for the for the band to perform and that was enough yeah well it had person. to be four or five cycles you know okay <laughs> and we were all sitting there cycling <laughs> and then somebody else could take over so you become fit oh, wow. and you contribute and it's a fun thing to do, yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. I'm I, so this is something I want to uh, kind of follow uh, with with you and and with other artists like this. Is some of these 
interesting ways to to integrate sustainability with with theater because I actually think there's a lot to explore there because it, it's an experience that's also supposed to be educational and, and supposed to change you somehow and if you want to change minds and if you want to normalize certain things like maybe <laughs> riding on a bicycle in order to to make electricity you know that's I think that art is probably the way to go especially performing art <laughs> let's do it yeah things have got to change I hope you enjoyed that convo. If you would like to see some of my conversation with the kindness and dignity team of iOpera, of which Olivia is a member, you can do that on the Opera on the Verge YouTube channel. For more about this podcast and the related blog and YouTube channel, visit onthevergetrilogy.com. No W's. Here's to being on the Verge.